week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. It is human instinct to nest before giving birth, pack before a trip, and plan around bad weather. Safety, supplies, and comfort are the hallmarks of city life, or so we tell ourselves. But what to do when destruction comes? When human nesting instincts can't save a nursing mother, and you don't have time to grab your supplies. Leave the city, Matthew exclaims, and follow Jesus into the wilderness. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 19 to 22. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 374 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have been proceeding carefully through Matthew 23 and 24. Typically, people skim through these texts, focus on the fireworks, and make broad assumptions about what individual examples in each verse mean. And I think we demonstrated clearly that that's a mistake with respect to the woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. And now in chapter 24, we're dealing with the woes against those who are caught unawares when the Lord comes on that day in First Thessalonians to tear down Jerusalem. And we're shifting now to what it's going to be like when that happens. And at each step of the way, we've demonstrated how nothing is written just because. The terminology is specific, the examples are specific, and they interlock and interconnect what Matthew is preaching here to the Gentile church with the letters of Paul and the teaching of the prophets. When human beings read this, they panic. But if you read this in panic, it's because you're attached to your city, to your comfort, and to your way of life. This is not describing the end of the world. It's describing the end of human civilization and describing the coming of the kingdom. We have talked many times about the ideal of the shepherd and the shepherd's life in Scripture, that you live outside of a city, and part of the shepherd's life is that you're exposed to the elements and that you are completely dependent on God's care. For God, the Exodus was the ideal time. He took care of the entire army of Pharaoh. He created land where there was a sea. He created life where there was a desert, and the people lived without a walled city, without an army, without food, without water, except what God provided for them. All they had was a big tent. That's all they had, and they did just fine. Once you're comfortable with the idea of living in a civilization completely based in a tent, 
which actually is a contradiction. It's a paradox. Civilization comes from the word kiwitas in Latin, which means city. So it's a civilization with no city, which is a paradox and only exists in the heavens. If you're concerned about this and you feel worried and you're lying up late at night saying, is tomorrow the day? Is tomorrow the day? Is it going to come tonight? Oh my goodness. That's because you're attached to the city. Once you become attached to the kingdom of heaven, you're ready to live under those elements. Now, is that hard? Is it hard to give up the idea of comfort in city? I mean, (laughs) I'm a white male American. I like comfort. It's all set up for me to be very comfortable. I have that much farther to go to grasp the importance and love of this kingdom. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. On the one hand, coming off of verse 17 and verse 18, it's clear that Matthew is continuing this theme of immediacy and urgency and speed. On the other hand, with respect to pregnancy, and in context of Matthew's use of the birth pangs in 1 Thessalonians, where we hear about the birth of the kingdom, verse 19 poses a question. When the day comes and the Lord is fulfilling his victory against his own city, what are your priorities? Because you're going to have to make a decision. And if you're stuck trying to figure out what to do with the children of your line, the child in your womb, it may lead to your destruction. You may be caught by the crumbling of the buildings in Jerusalem. There's a tension. Remember, the remnant in Jerusalem is interested in preserving its line and safeguarding the walls of the city and maintaining its integrity and purity against the outside world. Are you going to sit around trying to figure out how to preserve your own family? Or are you going to flee? It's not a very comfortable verse. The concern about what's going to happen to my family, what's going to happen to my line, fits very well in this section. Now, Clearly, if you're trying to flee, a pregnant woman or a woman who's nursing is difficult. It slows you down. Those women tend to have less energy for a long trek, obviously. But this section is not talking about what's going to make that trek difficult. Because if you look at the last two verses, if you're on your house, don't go back in the house to get stuff. And if you're in the field, don't go back to go pack before you leave. Just go. Just get out. Just leave now. Any normal person would want to make sure they had provision for the road. But Jesus says, you don't have time. And would want to make provision for their family. But he says, you don't have time. Anyone who's read Lamentations knows that there is a lot of suffering at the destruction of Jerusalem, borne by women and children. What it's saying is you don't have time even to think about the safety of your family. This is the urgency. I mean, Jesus is doing everything he can literarily for you to grasp the urgency of the situation when the destruction comes. Now, urgency, why do we say urgency? It's like I said, because we panic, like, God, the city's going to be destroyed. But we're told we're not supposed to be attached to the city. Jesus is not attached to the city. When Jesus sees the destruction of Jerusalem, he just walks away. Big deal. He doesn't need anything. Don't bother carrying around extra clothes. God will provide. Anything you've ever had, God has provided. So the dithering has to end 
with trusting in the Lord and walking in the way immediately out of Jerusalem. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. The first part of this verse is intuitive. I mean, during the winter, the weather is less agreeable. You don't have access to the fruit of the vine when you're traveling. If you don't have provision packed, you could be caught in a difficult situation in the wrong season. But then there's this mention of the Sabbath. Yeah, I mean, the only time we have this Sabbath journey is the distance between Jerusalem and Mount Olivet in Acts one twelve. But then you said, Father, like, really? Jesus cares how far they travel to save their lives when they're fleeing Jerusalem? Is this the problem? We know that distance, 2,000 cubits, is a limit that you're allowed to travel on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, when you're fleeing for your life, do you have to stay within that limit? Or can you just go as far as you want? Might there be some zealots among you who would stop you if you tried to go farther than that? But then I realized having this whole discussion is precisely the problem. Because if it's on the Sabbath, talk about dithering well, it's the Sabbath. Are you allowed to travel? Are you not allowed to travel? How far can you travel? Is it okay to transgress that distance on this day because you're fleeing for your life, because it's okay to save life? This is precisely the problem. If it's the Sabbath, you're going to have all the religious people discussing whether it's okay to travel or not. When this whole passage, Jesus has been trying to impress on you, get out. Oh, I know we're supposed to get out, but hold on a second. How far out should we go, Jesus? Once you're having that discussion, you're already in trouble. Once you're having that discussion, the curse of the law for you is death. You're having a debate about whether or not it's a sin to stray from the path of the Sabbath. That's the more literal translation, obviously. Odos means way. That's actually important in the book of Acts because we're talking about the way, referring to the teaching of the gospel. So which path are you going to take? If you get hung up on Jerusalem's perspective on what that path is, if you get stuck quibbling over what the temple expects of you with respect to your distance from the temple, then when the walls come tumbling down, you will be stuck inside the walls under condemnation. So it's a kind of fulfilling of Deuteronomy. You're going to follow this law? Can it bring you life? Or is following Jesus outside of the city where you're going to find life? There is so much on the line. And when the Lord comes, we know that he comes in the middle of the night like a thief. In Matthew, we will hear parables of the kingdom where we are admonished to keep vigil and not be caught unawares. It's not just bad luck if you're caught on your heels during a season where there's no fruit. Remember the judgment in Mark, how when you look at the tree, if it's past the time for fruit bearing, it's already too late. That's what winter means here. Matthew is playing with these images of judgment in order to draw our attention to what is required of us as we prepare to leave the city. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. This, of course, is from Daniel chapter 12, but deals with the teaching of the prophecy of Daniel, which is proclaimed from the post-apocalyptic perspective 
of the end of all human kingdoms. That is why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow to the king and don't care what he says. They're not afraid of what he's going to do, even if the God of Abraham lets them die in the fiery furnace. Because they know in the end there's going to be one king and one kingdom. The book of Daniel is against all human hegemony, dynasty, kingdom, and history. From the perspective of the prophet Daniel, this ugly Western expression about being on the right side of history is blasphemy because all history is offensive to God. It is only his history which comes in the end that is ushered in through the birth pangs Matthew is proclaiming that the true king is installed on the throne, and then there will be peace and justice. But if you try to believe in the peace and justice of one of the worldly kingdoms or rulers or governments, you cling to an ismos, like socialism or capitalism, you're embracing delusion, because there isn't an example of any kind of government in any of those categories following any of those ideologies that has not oppressed the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner in some way. And in this sense, what's happening at the U.S. border is providential because it shows you that the very nature of power results in people suffering somewhere on the edges. And if you don't think that the border of Texas is reminiscent of the provinces of the Roman Empire, you don't get it. If you don't see a connection between the immigrant in our day and your conception of the German barbarian at the end of the Roman era, you don't get it. And the Orthodox should understand this more than anyone else because we're stuck with this phrase, victories plural, against the barbarians plural, in the national anthem of the Byzantine Empire that we sing on the Feast of the Cross. Just as today you pray for Biden to deal with the immigrants on the border, they were praying for Constantine to deal with the barbarians on the border. And it wasn't one victory, it was a constant stream of conflict because that constant stream of conflict is what you require to maintain the kingdom of your ismos that you believe in so passionately. But that's not what Matthew is proclaiming. He is repeating to you what Daniel the prophet warned, that there is one kingdom and it is coming and it will subsume and overcome all the kingdoms of the earth as we hear at the beginning of the Psalter. God will put his anointed on Mount Zion and laugh at all the other kings. What you said, Father, reminds me of Hosea in chapter 4, where God desires faithfulness, loving kindness, and knowledge of God. But when humanity lacks those things, this is the world that God cannot abide. That is not the kingdom. If that scene at the border does not bring compassion to one's mind, and if this passage doesn't remind us of the suffering and tribulation that those people at the border are undergoing, we're missing the connection here. If we are fleeing on that day and someone does not offer us hospitality, then woe be to them. If we're the ones in comfort and someone is fleeing to us, woe on us, because 
the one thing that God is looking for, compassion and loving kindness, among the Americans, it's not there. And if it's not there, it's only a matter of time till God flattens our cities or city for there to be space for the kingdom. We, when it's time for us to flee, we don't have the opportunity to dither. And if you hear the stories of the people on the border, you understand a little bit of what that's like. When we see that that suffering isn't suffering to the extent that Jesus is speaking about in chapter 24 of Matthew, our hearts should go out to them and understand what can happen to us when that day comes. You can't think of this again as a literal history because that day will come. Daniel and Matthew are not concerned with the last day. They're concerned with today, and they're trying to get you to change your perspective on what's happening today for the sake of the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. If you want to understand why the Bible succeeded first against the Greek tyrants and then against the Roman Empire, you need only watch the crucifixion scene in the Netflix series Barbarians. It demonstrates eloquently how the Romans used crucifixion against their enemies. And if you're familiar with the gospel, while you see them crucifying these German barbarians, and you see what the shame of crucifixion means for this little German village, then you understand why Christ conquered the Roman Empire. But it wasn't an historical conquest. Constantine, who used the cross as a tool of oppression, put it on his shield and continued to use it as a tool of oppression. The victory is that Paul was able to use the Roman Empire. Paul, the free Roman citizen who became the slave of Jesus Christ, co-opted the empire in order to sow the seeds of its destruction in the minds of the people. It's not even an historical destruction. That's the victory of the kingdom. If we allow that seed, that subversive seed, to be sown in our hearts, it could bring about exactly what is required for the sake of the widow and the orphan at the border of Texas. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It's like someone who is about to be executed being reassured, don't worry, it's going to be quick. The tribulation itself is a mercy because it's only through the leveling of these cities that the kingdom can come. The only way for his teaching finally to bear fruit is by the scraping away of all this stuff blocking the earth so that his seed can finally be planted, take root, and give fruit. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.